Welcome, my dystopians. I'm Raul Guerrero, and you are listening to the Dystopian Republic. Today's story begins on the afternoon of November 21st, 1985. Andrino Sr., Yolanda, Michael, Juniper, Edmundo Sr., Juliana, and other Sajonian troops continued chasing their yellow-crossed enemies through the inland of La Costa del Norte. Out of an encircle of blues, an enclosing gale of bullets had soldiers from both sides crouching and bracing for the end. The gunfire went on and on like the magazine it came from was a mile long, making the fates of those who felt its current writ large. Upon its abrupt dissipation, the Sajonian soldiers found themselves alive and unharmed, in that Gregorio Jr.'s troops had been more than fatally overkilled. Relief perspired out of Andrino at a swiftness more sure than a human-sized balloon that's able to deflate without popping. Yolanda wasn't sure if she should be glad that she's not dead or be horrified by the smell and sight of death all around her. Michael quietly chuckled, licked the inside of his mouth and breathed in the mass of ended life as if the scent it emitted was watery and flowery. Juniper didn't shed one tear for the lives that newly left the earth, viewing their killings as proportionate to how cruel and callous they were to her people. As much as Edmundo reviled Gregorio's soldiers, he couldn't stomach how hideously they were killed. Juliana felt guilty that she had not a scratch from the gale while her fascist opposites endured every mark there was to sustain. Peaceful animal life and faraway ocean waves quickly came back, making the Sajonian soldiers realize that they deserted their comrades in Agnes Beach. Desperate to return and beg not to be court-martialed, a crowd of black hornets surrounded them with guns drawn more suddenly than the snap of a finger. The Sajonians were told to drop their guns, keep their hands up, and not even think of trying anything rash. The man who let the hornets then gave them his word that no harm would come their way as he had other plans for them. At that point, he had the Sajonians shot unconscious with non-lethal rounds and taken to his leader's settlement. The six friends woke up in an orientation center and to sickening headaches that had their cochlear stuck in a loop of ringing bells. Finding themselves secured to hospital beds with dead wires, they apprehensively wondered where the devil they were at. 
three teenagers soothingly told them to have no fear as their time to prosper had come. Michael giddily trembled. Juniper grinned calmly. Juliana became intrigued. Edmundo was creeped out. Andrino fell viscerally ill. And Yolanda grew distrustful. They were unfastened, sat up, helped out of their beds, and escorted to an outdoor pickup area. Their hour-long wait played a track of children playing, gentle breezes, singing birds, leaves swishing around, and students doing schoolwork. When time struck five again, a van-sized buggy pulled up in front of them and its driver jovially told them to hop in. The couples were taken through a metal tunnel where what was on the other side was not visible from the entrance and in reverse. Their ride dimmed to black when the way in heavily slided shut and out of that absolute lightlessness when the buggy halted as the exit opened with the same weight and smoothness. When the wheels stopped and doors opened, the couples set foot on a serenely cloudy campus underneath a pit forest. They were wonderstruck by a scholastic idol so finesse and far in repose that it was a hunting ground far happier and vivider than any other Dave ever encountered. Three pairs of look-afterers welcomed them to Roimpis, Ferrick and Blehan Urutia, Winok and Magali Buenafe, and Zorion and Noella Fragoso. This was at a time when being rich and vile were two things, Ferrick Blehan, Winok, Magali, Zorion, and Noella vowed to never be. Their sunshiny, flexible, and decent mannerisms hid any possibility of them wishing to do harm to anybody. Ferrick, Blehan, Winok, Magali, Zorion, and Noella respectively took Andrino, Yolanda, Michael, Juniper, Edmundo and Juliana on six versions of the same tour around the refuge. Books, newspapers, videotapes, and cassettes packed the horizontal, vertical, and diagonal shelves of the Roimpus Library of Righteousness. Asked by Juliana to explain why such a name was chosen, Noella said that it came to be thanks to Roy Jr.'s push to promote an understanding that wasn't polluted by the Yellow Cross. Metal doors were the upside-down black piano keys that dipped three inches into the hallway walls of the Roimpus dorm of unwinding. Blehan had Yolanda come with her into the room she shared with Farrakh, calling it a reincarnation of the treehouse they built and spent much of their salad days in. 
she preemptively told her not to ask her about that time as she and her mate would rather that it be left undiscussed. Teachers of various subjects were hard at work lecturing their students in all but one of the rooms in the Roimpus Hall of Veracity. In the classroom not in use, Edmundo was having chamomile peppermint tea with Zorion when he asked him to tell more about this Roy guy whom the refuge was named after. Fruits, vegetables, and herbs of innumerable shapes and colors stood a whole floor above the perfectly flat land of the Roimpus farm of husbandry. Michael rudely asked Winok what made Roy so special if he's someone no Sajonian has ever heard of. This won him a waspish loom so crabbed and fierce that it made him wish he hadn't opened his mouth. Inside the rampous canteen of nutriment, tables and seats dispersed within a spotlessly utilitarian space big enough for an entire village to pack inside of. The cold, hard furniture lined and dotted before a counter and kitchen that took up a whole wall and dipped 1,400 square feet behind it. A seated Magali soberly instructed Juniper to sit, eat her crushed cranberry, wild rice, fried squirrel bowl, and listen real close. Moving about the rumpus center of recreation, Farrick asked Andrino if he noticed a common theme with the physicality and mentality they're walking upon. He pressed him to limit his answer to a single sentence he hoped would act as a starting point for the who, what, why, when, where and how of Roy Jr. and his refuge. Andrino answered that the sports and games represented two parts of who the leader of Roimpus was as a person. Slick whips hit the farm's land at such velocities that their impacts echoed beyond its quarters and scared away nearby wildlife. Michael crouched on his lower legs and elbows as his arms were around and above his skull until the lashes ceased. Surprised to not be in the grotesque, stinging agony of his life, he discovered a circumference of splatted dots circling around him with radii slightly longer than his arm reaches. Winok and the residents working on the crops had a belly laugh over how Michael really thought that he was going to be punished severely. Nervously smiling and chuckling, the recipient of their joke was conflicted between exhaling his relief that he wasn't harmed and being disturbed that Roy's subjects would pull such a dark trick. Winok told Michael to blow on his fear like the dust that it was and know that the people of Roimpus weren't animals like the yellow jackets controlling Brumelia. Farrick 
made sure Andrino understood that the refuge was the culmination of Roy's life mission to give peace and prosperity to every adult and child he met and got to know. Blehan explained that the dawn of Roimpus came in the form of a meticulous sketch that was fancily penciled on a construction paper the size of a dining room table. Ferrick said that the drawing was a fairyland as vivid a dream as any the den preteen Roy ever had or would have. Zorion added that the overnight fantasy evolved into copies of daydreams that couldn't stay out of mind for more than several hours at a time. Noella whispered that Roy Jr.'s drawing won the praise of Roy Sr., who had it framed on the wall for all to see and be impressed by. Winok said that while the vision was clear, there was no money, land, materials, employees, or residents to back it up. Magali added that the substance would come when Grimsby Sr. won the 1972 presidential election, making Roy Sr. hear the fall of Bromelia's democracy come like a madman's wave. Blehan said that the time to build started ticking late that November night, starting a 10-year run that saw the purchases of too many pieces of land to count. Noella added that Roy Sr. spent 90 cents out of every dollar he inherited from Gabino Sr. on creating settlements that let prey in and kept predators out. Farrick said that one of those safe spaces flawlessly realized what Roy Jr. drew, dreamt about, and now led Roimpus. Stopping Noella from saying a thing more, Juliana asked her if Gregorio and his yellow cross were after her. A question answered with a timid, nodding yay. As a matter of fact, Farrick, Blehan, Winok, Magali, and Zorion were also on that list of irredeemables. Noella and the aforementioned five spent their first 18 years of life infrequently straying far or for long from Habsburgo Brumel College. Nuzzled against a northern part of the forest surrounding Lobotown, the campus was a liberal enclave in an area that was mostly reactionary otherwise. Established in honor of Habsburgo III, Gregorio Jr., Itzaso, Gregoria, and Gregorio III saw it as a reptilian thorn to ply out of their flesh by hook or by crook. The parents of Noella and her comrades were professors who wrote, sang, read, preached, concocted, or analyzed. Knowledge, research, and art 
was everywhere their children turned growing up, dazzling them with exquisite parties, graceful performances, and ritzy exhibitions. The six tours were abruptly paused by the grating blares of an alarm signaling that an outsider or group of them had entered Roimpus's grounds unannounced. At a western part of the refuge's unclimbable slopes, Rapodo, Passau, and Joachim were under the custody of the same guards that took out the Yellow Crossers that the deserting Sajonians were chasing after. Then, in their mid-teens, the boys escaped an old motel in Hamilton that kids like them were forcibly housed in whenever they weren't in school. Andrino and his friends ran to the scene and stomped in shock at how thorough their tour guides secured and muffled Rapodo, Passau, and Joachim. The cleats on the boys' gloves and shoes answered the question of how they managed not to sustain any fractures, sprains, or scratches during their climb down onto Roimpus. What concerned the refugees' residents even more was how Rapodo, Passau, and Joachim accessed their grounds without going through their closely guarded secretive routes or checkpoints. But most of all, Roimpus's people were adamant about knowing where the boys came from and what side they were on. Rapodo, Passau, and Joachim came to in the lower level of an open-air room that was square and shaped like a side table with its legs in the ground. The boys were roundly shaken up by Farrakh and his comrades, harshly staring down at their seated rear ends. Joachim hit the fear, shaking his nerves in a hardened scowl, and Passau trembled like a boy alone in a creepy forest. Rapodo implored his arresters to believe that he and the other two weren't hostile and only wanted sanctuary. Winok asked him not to scream and said that every person in Roimpus knows that he, Passau, and Joachim came in peace. Rapodo upsettably asked him why he and his boys were shackled, pushing Magali to say that their bounds were crucial to the initiations they're about to undergo. Blehan clarified to the boys that they won't be alone in being oriented into the Roimpus family because Andrino, his friends, and fellow Sajonians will join them in that process. Three Prus Blue Robins flew into the room and landed by the fronts of Farrakh, Zorion, and Noella's feet like they knew who to look for. They let go of the rolled-up notes that were in their mouths for the mentioned three to read. Farrakh, Zorion, and Noella received instructions from Roy Jr. to transfer the boys and Sajonians to the Roimpis Pavilion of Assemblage as he would like to speak to them personally. 
the transferees were unshackled on a bare soil floor as residents filled the stands of a circus tent-like ligneous dome that was partially open to the air. Even with the shackles off, they still felt tied up thanks to the guards watching over their every reflex. Roimpus's people stared at them slightly less morbidly than witnesses frowning over an execution that's about to start, hearing their own pasts hauntingly mock them like children. Juniper found her captivity soothing as she saw bits of herself in the audience members she got adequate mental pictures of. Michael kinda liked how Roimpus's people were sweet peaches one second and bitter grapefruits the next. The benefit of the doubt Juliana gave to them was just enough to crack her mind a couple inches open. Edmundo didn't think highly of their unanticipated swings from geniality to hostility and back again. The horrored trembling Andrino broke into when Roy ordered the transfer hurt more and shook harder the longer he stood. Yolanda frowned daggers in a spleen that knew Roimpus was bad news the moment its guards pointed guns at her and her siblings in arms after wiping out the yellow crossers they chased inland. Rapodo, Pasau, and Joachim firmly held their pulsating right hands, clenched their left ones, and petulantly stood in wait. Their first initials serifly tattooed the backs of their hands in a manner that made them lonely on their own, but a trio when abreast. The boys swore to do whatever was necessary to make sure they never, ever, ever go through or witness the nightmare they ran away from again. Roy Jr. trod with strength, dignity, and sensitivity out of the entrance tunnel into the transferees for the initiation of his lifetime. He wore a black army uniform that was a prim, decorated blend complementing his youthful dapperness. The patches and pins he wore shone his affiliation with the Black Hornets as if they were his identity's vital organs. Roy welcomed his people of Roimpus to another edition of his initiation as before him were three boys and a bunch of Sajonians. He said that like others in the past, their latest welcoming will have four stages, destruction, revitalization, reflection, and declaration. Roy ordered the transferees to pay close attention to the projection screens straightening out of their rolls and covering the open-air pockets above his audience. In a booth straight above the pavilion floor, his projectionists played a film all panels would singly show. As the film began, 
Roy explained that while the walks of life his people came from were many, they all escaped situations or environments where misery was the norm. He added that what the new arrivals were about to see will show the suffering that drove those before them to desperately race to his salvation. The film presented a teenage couple being unmercifully beaten with steel reinforced gloves and stabbed with number two pencils in a dirty, dingy basement. Edmundo slowly shook his head in disgust at Baldrick and a dozen of his men laughing and cheering like they were having the time of their lives. Juliana's skin crawled hearing the girl cry and beg the men not to force themselves on her. Juniper felt horrible for the boy who had to watch Baldrick abuse his girlfriend with his eyes forced wide open. Roy said that the couple being victimized on film were sitting on the front row as of him speaking. He described that attack as something the pair never deserved, telling them that it was in no way their fault. Roy swore to the Lord himself that no one will hurt them as heinously as Baldrick did ever again. His film cut to Kiana thirstily trailing through the jungle of Eldelnion and asking for her black rabbit to come out and eat the carrot in her hand. The vegetable she claimed to have was really a cattle prod that smoked, burned, and lit like a cigarette on its end. Kiana sounded like she needed to prey on the person she pursued to survive, making Pasau feel as if he was chest deep in a cold pool. The film momentarily broke into a static, then showed Kiana struggling to hold down a young woman whom she repeatedly called a rebel scum. Adelina filmed the whole thing and told her friends subduee to lie still as she had one hell of a makeover coming. She trudged to the struggle, angled her shot high, and got a close-up of her victim's face that was over Kiana's left shoulder. Rapoto's slow shake of his head sped up when Adelina told her friend that she knew what to do next with the prod she gifted her for Christmas. Joachim's scowl broke to shards as Kiana lowered her weapon to the left corner of her subduee's hairline. Corrosive sizzles and ear-bleeding screams had Andrino shutting his eyes, looking diagonally down and acting like he was screaming his larynx out. Yolanda's left palm was over her mouth and Michael's face silently yelled one holy F after another at the joy Adelina and Kiana found in their victim's suffering. Roy said that the woman Adelino Sr.'s demon seeds preyed on was now a guard of his, pushing her to take off 
her protective mask to reveal a face that'll never get back its former figure. He told the transferees to perceive every cell of her scarred skin with sympathy, sorrow, spite, and commitment. Roy ordered them to view every other person who's been attacked and victimized with those same feelings and imagine themselves in their shoes. His film's anthology of cruelty rolled on for three additional watching, reacting, narrating hours. It showed previously unseen footage of a 14-year-old girl in all black assassinating the press secretary under Habsburgo V. That advisor's husband and their two daughters ran and hid until their near-fatal tumbles onto Roimpis. The film then showed a survivor's up-close video of a caucus being automatically sprayed in the bistro. That person and a few members of the families affected were now Roy's to love and nourish. The closer to the end the film rolled, the more Roy was able to see his goal of throwing his transferees' fears and doubts into the next world. He explained that the shift to and from film and commentary may seem repetitive at face value, but assured them that the end reward will induce a thankfulness only Roimpus could offer. His film's apex was a sequential collage of the mass attacks that engulfed Bromelia in a haze that smelled of bullets and departing lives. Each cut and glued together piece of that series got as little as one resident to stand up and or self-identify an entire clan of adults and children to do so and all numbers betwixt. The third last of Roimpus's people made themselves known when the film showed them being forced to watch the national stadium executions. This meant that Roy's family was still seated and so were Farrakh, Blehan, Winok, Magali, Zorion, and Noella. Nonetheless, they all stood and identified in solidarity with their brethren and sisterin, thinking of the very particular reasons why the stories behind their arrivals weren't brought up. The film suddenly stopped at the 3 hour, 6 minute, and 29 second mark, but not without leaving the transferees' equanimities in utter shambles. Looking down like a parent beholding their crying children, Roy gently told them that the charred canvas caused by the hellish flames his heavenly water extinguished will now be revitalized. His audience and guards' stares assuaged to a commiseration more unison than kittens purring, leaning, and resting on their sobbing caretaker. Roy's other film projected an unnoticeably looping atmosphere of peaceful wind howls. 
greener than fresh limes. The knee-high grass was flown all around by the breeze, doing so to the sunny blue sky as the dirt it sprouted out of was a cedar in its first dried hydration after a wet spell. Like the one before it, the second film projected itself on every single screen, but also did the same to the floor as if it too was a panel. Tranquility, contemplation, and solicitude interflowed into a tune that helped the transferees whimper and sniffle out of their woes. With open and kind arms, Roy, his family, and people crowded their new arrivals and held them close and tight. At first, and for a tiny while, the transferees fretfully grabbed, shoved, squirmed, and pulled away from their initiators. Roy's people persisted with their warmth and softness despite the beatings they took without issue or resentment. Their perseverance proved to be the difference maker in exhausting the anguish in the transferees to almost benumbed fumes. Farrakh, Blehan, Winok, Magali, Zorion, and Noella believed that they finally made Andrino, Yolanda, Michael, Juniper, Edmundo, and Juliana's ways of thinking close enough to theirs, a belief Roy and his family had with Rapodo, Passau, Joachim, and all of the other initiates. The tune and loop rolled on for a minute longer than the film that defined the destruction Roy unleashed on his arrivals. Once it cut to a silent black, Roimpus's guards took the transferees to various dorm rooms so that their sleepless night of reflection could begin. Juniper keenly breathed in and out of her inflamed sinuses with a smile as fragile and unsettled as her tearful eyes. Michael hugged himself with a grin that was at a peace he hadn't felt since reporting for his training for the Sajonian offensive on Agnes Beach. He and Juniper made aggravated faces at Juliana for having a hard time believing that Roy wanted what was best for his community. Edmundo agreed with his love by adding that he seen so many red flags that he could dot a field like a breadboard with them. The cuts leaking blood out of Andrino's psyche moved the possibility of him concurring with Michael or Juniper away from his reach. Yolanda angrily made her refusal to become another one of Roy's minders resounding and unequivocal. Michael told her to please do tell him what she thinks should be the next actions they and the others take. Yolanda suggested that the six of them should skedaddle until Roimpus is nothing but forest that could be looked down at from way up high. Andrino called her nuts and yelled that they wouldn't make it out of the dorms, much less Roimpus entirely. Yolanda rolled her eyes, gave a smirking shake of her head, and said that such a run was worth a try.
Michael asked her to specify exactly where they would go that could shelter them from the Roimpus people and comrades they left behind. Juniper added that they couldn't simply return to Agnes Beach with novellas of oopsies, sorries, and promises not to do it again. Edmundo pointed out that they charged inland when they were supposed to help keep the coastal town liberated. Juliana was sure their insubordination would be enough cause for them to be put in the brig at the occupation site and upon their return to the island chain. Yolanda pleaded with Edmundo and his wife not to tell her that they were siding with Michael and Juniper. Juliana described the choice before them as being undesirable in that word's every sense, saying that survival and quality of life should be the main priorities. Michael thanked her and added that life under Roy's grip would guarantee their rights to live and contain much more liberties. Juniper stated that their lives in Sajonian custody would only yield confinement, abuse, near starvation, and undignified deaths. Michael asked Andrino, Yolanda, Edmundo, and Juliana if they forgot how pitiless and torturous their government was in training them. Juniper said that their Sajonian overlords enjoyed hurting and humiliating their nation's young people. Andrina was never able to relegate the brutality of that training anywhere near his mind's quarters of dormancy. Edmundo and Juliana's hearts submerged in a water that woefully begged God to heal those traumas into faraway memories. Even Yolanda couldn't stop herself from shakily inhaling and exhaling over those grim days. Her disinclination to join the people of Roimpus stemmed from her worry that they'll repeat the betrayal her former generals jabbed onto her spine. All Yolanda desired was to be in a place where she could be merry, safe, taken care of, and treated with dignity. Michael had her look at what Juliana laid out like a fork in the road where one path led to a flawed life that at least tries, while the other would lead to a detention that won't even bother to make an effort to provide redeeming value to their existences. Juniper said that they, as a group, should feel blessed that they found a fully functioning home instead of one that had to be declared and built from a shape of ground. Michael added that Roy dealt them blows that weren't anywhere close to the strikes that their former generals inflicted time after time. Juniper called Roimpus their one and only chance to re-experience the Zashonian islands they grew up in and fought the universe of. Andrino placed the refuge and his former home side by side like two pictures flat on a table, surprising himself with things he didn't see previously. Pushing the red flags raised off to the side, 
the bright demeanors and emphasis on we as opposed to me, Edmundo saw among Roimpus's people was unexpectedly close to how Sajonians, such as himself, gave and received their geniality and selflessness. Yolanda noticed that more than a few of Roy's subjects were months or weeks away from adulthood where the next generation could enter the world. Andrino could relate to how diligent nearly all of Roimpus's young people were in ensuring that the cliques they formed did not turn into yachts where only the desired were welcome. Edmundo could not measure how close to home he was hit by Roy's potent dedication to his community's intellectual welfare. Off and on, he swore that he was enduring the strict rigor he macheted through like brushy wooden vines from grade one to senior year all over again. A daydream he cuddled himself into like a dense wool blanket. The recent use Andrino saw in the center caused his brain to brew up flashbacks of the boisterous partying his people were famous for. It brought a ton of individuality and humanity to a community he fought was under the clutches of an unhealthy group think. In the middle of listening to Magali, Juniper overheard the cooks who made her bowl discuss having a swim in some lake after lights out. She and Michael had an enthusiasm for all things related to boats, intending to pass that obsession onto their kids. Juniper was hopeful that lake the cooks brought up was vast, deep, and had no shortage of docks. Michael stated that Roimpis was the Sajonian Islands away from the island chain, but without the pollutants that messed them up under the guise of training. Juniper said the same thing word for word as if she read it off his script after a day of non-stop rehearsal. Juliana told Yolanda, Edmundo, and Andrino that she's sure they could give Roinpis one chance if a cynic like her was willing to. She said that they, Michael, and Juniper had not a thing to lose and every possible thing to gain by staying. Juliana explained to her friends that the worst Roinpis could do was confirm, but should the best result their lives will bring life to more and those offspring will take over when they break off the tree. Slightly less than a quarter of the Sajonian arrivals needed little time to decide how they'll declare. In the case of more than half though, whether or not they'll join was a question that required the entirety of the night to answer. As day slowly faded in, Roy, his audience, guards, and transferees returned to where they were after the revitalization. Michael raised an eyebrow at the visibly smaller assembly but shrugged it off 
as the people not in attendance being busy with other matters. He and his friends turned blind eyes to Rapoto, Pasau, and Joachim being three who weren't present. For all the passion they threw at one another, it was tame compared to the blood-stained ructions, destruction of property, and immediate interventions that complicated other reflections. Roy thanked his new arrivals for making it through the reflection unscathed or in good enough condition for the declarations he's waited to hear all initiation long, and one at a time, Andrino, Yolanda, Michael, Juniper, Edmundo, Juliana, and the Sajonians on hand introduced their names and declared themselves as members of the Roimpus family. The crowd cheered at a volume that only a stadium concert could provide, breaking Roy into an ecstasy that made him the center of a galaxy where his subjects were the planets orbiting under his gravity's pull and push. Few felt more elated than Farrakh, Blehan, Winog, Magali, Zorion, and Noella, who weren't sure the six they guided would join as their luck in being first to meet prospects who ultimately stayed was subpar. Now that the initiation was in the rear view mirror, Roimpus resumed its usual life, anticipating the next time it'll have to initiate outsiders. The glasses worn by the Sajonians who were newly welcomed used its red lenses and forny structure to take their attention away from the red flags Edmundo raised. Not only that, its wearers were unmindful of how things were going back in agonist speech and if the liberation was holding or imploding, and as fate would have it, their desertion would matter a lot as far as the ongoing civil war went, and in ways neither they nor the people who took them in would expect or want. And that was down into Roimpus. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to the story I just gave. Share this show with everyone you know. Make sure they share it with everyone they know. Check out my website at www.rss.com slash podcasts slash the dystopian republic. Send me your respectful questions and constructive feedback at Raul Guerrero Jr. 95 at gmail.com. And lastly, support the show via my PayPal at paypal.com slash paypal me slash Raul Guerrero Jr. On that note, I'm Raul Guerrero and come again for another gripping, thoughtful, and sinister episode of the Dystopian Republic.